So last week, we saw how Paul was resolute in making his way to Jerusalem in spite of the people's pleas for him not to go. So the people were saying to Paul, don't go. But because he had heard from the Lord that he must go, he was resolute. He was not dissuaded. He said, I'm going. And we talked about that and what that means and how to apply or how to understand prophetic word and how to understand the interpretation of that and so on. This week we're going to see what happened when he got to Jerusalem. And just as the Lord had revealed, Paul is bound, he's handed over to the Roman authorities, he's taken into custody. But before he is taken into custody, into Roman custody, he makes what is essentially his last public appeal to the Jews. Now, he continues to speak and he continues to write and communicate, but this is sort of his last public appeal, and he speaks to the crowd and he does that. So we are going to read through that, and I want you to notice in these verses how many times he refers to his Jewish identity and to his Jewish roots and how he refers to other people and activities that would all have been familiar to the Jewish people. So we are in Acts chapter 21, verse 17. We will read from Acts 17, uh, pardon me, Acts 21, 17, all the way through Acts 22, verse 22. And the question is, which culture? So, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, where, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
the commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak, to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. You know, just as Jesus did during his earthly ministry, Paul observed all the Jewish laws and practices. That's what we're reading about here and how he's going about it. I'm not going into detail on that, but you notice how he speaks about himself. He says, I have observed all the law. I've observed all the practices. And then, 
as he understood what the fulfillment of God's prophecies and promises were, how what, what God had pointed to in the Old Testament was now being fulfilled in Jesus, then he made those changes. And he, te- and he speaks about the fact that even though he is observing these Jewish laws and practices, there are some of those laws and practices that do not apply anymore because of Jesus. And he presents those, he teaches that, he goes through that. But he is very clearly identifying himself as Jewish. And, as we have seen repeatedly, he is eager for his Jewish brothers and his sisters to know Jesus as Messiah and for them to be saved. But the people reject him, they attack him physically, and ultimately they hand him over to the Romans for the express purpose of having him killed. Just as they did to Jesus. Both Jesus and Paul and the disciples as such and others, they appealed to their own, but their own did not receive them. That's what the Bible says. So I'd like to consider this passage that we've read in terms of two questions. Two questions for us to consider. And the first one is this. How should we understand culture and tradition? Culture can mean different things based on the context. And when we speak about good culture, bad culture, or cultural influence, we sometimes mean things and we talk about culture in a positive way, and we sometimes talk about culture in a negative way. We use that word to, you know, to suggest a number of different things. But in general, in general, when we use the term culture, we are referring to the social behaviors, to the social norms, to the communal knowledge, to the beliefs, to the language, to the communication, to the art, to the laws, to the legal systems, to the customs, to the dress, to the habits of a specific group of people. And we say, okay, this is the culture that is there for this group of people, right? Tradition is when those customs, those norms, those behaviors are passed along from generation to generation. They're transmitted from generation to generation and then practiced then by that next generation. So you have these culture, this cultural expression, and as it is perpetuated through the generations, you have tradition. And although we talk about American culture or Indian culture or British culture, it's almost never a political or national identity. It's always about specific groups of people. They could be large, they could be small, they could, or small, large. They could be in a single location or they could be spread out throughout the world. They could be educationally and economically diverse or they could be very similar. But it's really, we're talking about people who have something in common that binds them together in specific ways. And we speak about that and we talk about culture. So even when we talk about American culture, we really mean that there are a whole bunch of subcultures. Southern culture, West, you know, the Outwest, Texas is a whole culture to itself. And then, and you know, we talk about, you know, Hispanic culture. But, but you know, you, you, you talk to Raquel and you'll find that, you know, just the fact that somebody speaks Spanish doesn't mean that they're of the same culture. The Puerto Rican American is completely different from the Mexican American and the Mexican, Mexico City Mexican American is very different from the rural Mexico Mexican American, 
right? I mean, we have completely different subcultures, and you can look at that in India, and you can look at that all over the world, and we see these differences of culture and expression, and so we see that that's how people behave. They tend to, birds of a feather flock together, right? We tend to behave in those ways because that's how we have been brought up. That's our influence. Even the, among the Jewish people, both the ancient and the contemporary, there's a wide variety of cultural expression. And so, you know, you can find all sorts of differences and subcultures within the Jewish community today, but even in the time of Jesus and in New Testament times, there were specific distinctions. And you see some of that in the past passages that we've read, and you'll see some of that in the coming uh, passage too. But there are the Pharisees, there are the Sadducees, there are the Essenes, there are others who all have slightly different cultures. Right? Now, modern sociologists, anthropologists, and cultural researchers, they talk about religion as an outcome of culture. And so according to that line of thinking, religious beliefs are an outcome of cultural beliefs. Right? People create their own gods. Essentially, people create gods in their own image based on their culture and their tradition they form their own system of faith and define their own method of worship. That's what the world will define, and we'll speak about it. But the Bible presents a very different picture. The Bible describes God, who is wholly distinct from human beings, as the one who created human beings to have a relationship with him. And then God gave human beings the ability, and that means the communication, all of that, to establish that relationship and then he gave specific instructions and he gave all that was necessary to maintain that relationship with him. So to put it in another way, God's intent was not that culture should give rise to religious beliefs about God. It was that religion, or more specifically, more accurately, relationship with him should define culture, should give rise to culture. It was not meant to be that culture would define how we believe. It was what we believed and who we knew would give rise to how we lived. So we were created to live in a godly culture. Not Indian culture, British culture, American culture, Hispanic culture, no. We were actually created to live in a godly culture. When sin separated us from God, when our relationship with God was broken, we started to define our own relationships and create our own culture, apart from God. And so, the people of the world, almost immediately after the fall, after Adam and Eve had sinned, began to establish cultures all over the world and distinguishing themselves, dis making that distinction with other people, other cultures. And in the middle of all of that, God chose Abraham and his descendants to redeem the prevailing culture that was there in the Middle East and to establish a new cultural norm 
that would point the way to and prepare the way for Jesus to come. So he took, I mean, as all this diversity is taking place, God took Abraham and said, I'm going to do something with you and your descendants that will prepare the way for Jesus to come, for Jesus to be revealed to the world. So that was the purpose of why God chose the children of Israel, so that through that line, we, the body of Christ, could be established. That means that when we think about our own human culture and about God's culture, what it means to live in a biblical culture, we can't start with our human culture and then define our lives as children of God in God's kingdom. We have to start with God, God's truth, God's word, God's spirit, and our relationship with God through Jesus to define how we live in this world. Right? Now, you may think to yourself that someone who knows the true and living God, Yahweh, as the Jews did, would never allow human culture to have higher priority over God and his word. They revered Yahweh. They worshipped Yahweh. They revered his word. It was such an important part of their lives. And yet, if you study why the Jewish people rejected Jesus, the disciples, Paul, and the early church, and in fact today, in the present day, they continue to reject the church, because it is because, primarily because, of culture and tradition. Their distinctiveness, their unique culture that God had put in place, counterculture to every other culture that was there, that uniqueness, that distinctiveness, that making them different, they started to elevate that. They started to focus on that. And what God himself had instituted now became more important than God himself. So that when Jesus is in their midst, they do not even recognize him as the Messiah. They're more focused on following the law and what they will do and how righteous they are and how observant they are. They have allowed the culture that they are in to define and to supersede even their recognition of God. So in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 13, and to be very explicit about this, in Mark chapter 7, verse 5 through 13, we read that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? It was tradition to wash the hands. Now you can say that was good you know, hygiene and good practice, but they did it because of a particular tradition. And they're finding fault with Jesus and the disciples. And he, Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, good reminder on Mother's Day, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. 
Thus, you nullify the word of God. Another translation says, you make it ineffective. You're making the word of God ineffective by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. What is Jesus saying? You have elevated culture and tradition above me and have therefore rejected me. Why did Paul's appeal not gain traction even though he presented himself as thoroughly Jewish? They had elevated their position in being Jewish above any possible grace of God to the Gentiles. And so when Paul says, God has sent me to the Gentiles, they also reject Paul. What God did through Jesus, the disciples, Paul, and the transmission of the complete word of God was entirely counter-cultural to every culture in the world. The early church established a culture that was different from anything else. But over time, the church itself did exactly what the Jewish people had done. The church defined its own norms and behaviors and then elevated those practices over the word of God and God himself. The church created a culture, a religious culture, that was no longer based on a relationship with God, but rather on submission to an institution. In uh, 1517, Martin Luther, a German Catholic priest, made a radical statement. Through his study of the word of God, and particularly the book of Romans, he declared that salvation, or justification, was by faith alone, and not by paying money to the church or following the customs of the church, the rituals of the church. Luther wrote out 95 theses, refuting the practices of the church, and nailed them to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany, for all the people to see it. And through his protest of the practices of the church and his call for reforms, Luther sparked the Protestant Reformation, a counter-cultural revolution. Keep in mind that the world at that time, the known world, the European world, the Middle East, you know, and all of these areas were really dominated by this institutional church. And what Martin Luther was saying was entirely countercultural. And we're sitting here in a church today where we espouse a biblical worldview, we hold to a biblical culture because of the outcomes of the Protestant Reformation. Right? But in addition to what the Jewish people did, there's another side to this account in Acts 21 and Acts 22, and that leads us to the second question, and I'll move quickly. How should we handle rejection? Paul made a very impassioned plea to the very people who had been beating him up. He doesn't just say, oh, take me, get me out of here, and you know, these awful people, you know. He says, can I speak? Can I address the crowd? I've just been beaten up. You know, I'm sure he's still hurting. 
Physically, he's still in pain. And he says, I want to speak to them. I want to appeal to them. I want to share my heart with them. He identifies with them. He speaks in Aramaic to better relate to them. He presents Jesus to them. But they reject him. How did he respond? How does he respond? He continues to love. He continues to pray for them. He continues to have a compassion and a burden. He says, oh, all that. I wish that all of Israel could be saved. I wish that my brothers and my sisters could be saved. He continues to express that kind of compassionate care and love for the very people who are beating him up. And even after he's imprisoned by the Romans, even though he describes himself as an apostle to the Gentiles, he does not condemn or reject the Jewish people. I said earlier that Martin Luther initiated a much-needed reform in the church. By the 16th century, the time of Martin Luther, the Christianity had become so completely institutionalized and entirely separate from Judaism that it had lost all connection to its Jewish roots. And the church was blatantly anti-Semitic. There was rampant anti-Semitism in the church. Jews were hated as Christ killers. That was, way, that was the way the Jews were treated. But as Luther studied the scriptures, he saw that God had chosen the Jew Jewish people that God had a purpose for them, and that God would maintain his covenant with them. So in 1523, Luther advised kindness towards the Jews. And he wrote a book even, or article as such, that said that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. And so he said, based on this, that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, we should be kind to the Jews. And he tried to convert, to reach out to those that he could, and to convert them, to Christianity. He said, oh, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. You, you just didn't know about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. But they rejected him. And when his efforts at conversion failed, he grew bitter toward all Jewish people. And in 1543, he wrote a book entitled On the Jews and Their Lies. Vile, hateful stuff that he wrote about them. And he called them not God's chosen people, but the devil's people. And he started to advocate for their expulsion from all the European countries. He said we should burn the synagogues, we should even kill the Jews. Luther's writings, about 500 years later, were used in Nazi Germany to justify anti-Semitic actions. And you look at that and you think about that and you say, how could Luther who understood these key truths of the scriptures. How could he be so wrong and hateful about the Jewish people? In fact, by the way, it wasn't just the Jewish people. He was pretty hateful to anybody who didn't think like how he thought or who didn't practice what he practiced. He spoke out against the Muslims. He spoke out against uh, the anti-Trinitarians and so on. And he was, I mean, he, be, he was pretty hard. And you think, why? Why did, why did this man, who had such insight about the things of God, behave in this manner? And it's because Luther did not handle being rejected by the Jews the same way that Paul handled being rejected by the Jews. 
he, they both faced the same kind of rejection. In fact, Paul faced much worse rejection. Paul was ultimately killed because of how they rejected him. Paul was beaten and suffered and everything else. But the way that Martin Luther responded to that rejection was entirely different from the way that Paul responded to that rejection. And so the world, the culture of this world, that typically, that most of the time, really is where we are. The world says that if someone comes against you, you should respond in kind. An eye for an eye. They reject you, you reject them. You come against them. But biblical culture empowers us to turn the other cheek. Biblical culture says pray for those who hate you. Biblical culture says love your enemies. Biblical culture is to plead for forgiveness and mercy on behalf of the sins of others. A whole group of people and others around you that are doing things that are wicked and you say, oh, the culture is going, you know, they're just going to hell. No, the Bible says pray for them, intercede for them, stand on their behalf, confess sins that they have committed, not you committed, but pray on their behalf and intercede for them. Biblical culture empowers us to forgive those who have hurt us. To give and not expect anything in return. To share the truth even at our own peril. Biblical culture prepares us to expect rejection and not to retaliate when rejected. Many of us have lived according to the cultural expectations and norms that we have been brought up in. Maybe it was not all bad. Maybe it was not all good. But we have lived primarily according to our own upbringing. And the question for us this morning is, are we paying attention to biblical culture? And you know, as we have lived in this earth, we have, many of us have faced rejection. Many of us have, many of us have been rejected for a variety of reasons. Physical, mental, financial, class, whatever it may be, perceptions, we've been rejected. And maybe it's not just that you have received or you have been rejected. Maybe you were on the rejecting side. Maybe you rejected somebody else based on something that was entirely arbitrary. Today, I want to challenge us, I want to encourage us that we respond and apply this word by identifying with Christ in a biblical culture. Our identity is not in solidarity with any culture of the world. No matter how strong that culture is, our identity is in being united with Christ. And the call, the commission that we have is to establish unity with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who may be completely different from us culturally in terms of human culture. They don't look like us, they don't speak like us, they don't think like us, they don't have the same background as us. And you, you have no idea how you can even relate to them in the natural. But guess what? When we are united in Christ Jesus, when we are made one in Him, 
when we see the mind of Christ or have the mind of Christ, when we see the face of Jesus, when we are praying to our same Heavenly Father, when we are united in the same set of needs, when we are moved by the same troubles, when the same sorrows are affecting us, and we agree together in prayer, and we come together to stand, oh, we are united in Christ, not because of our culture, but in spite of our culture, because of our biblical culture. Paul speaks so powerfully, so eloquently, so dramatically, not because he had something to gain, he had everything to lose, but because in the Lord, he knows what the heart of the Lord is. And he responds. He lives in biblical, in Christian, in godly, in Christ-directed culture. And so that is our prayer for us this morning. I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. What have you done in your life? Where is or how is it that you're living today? What is your mode of thinking? How do you consider others? Is it by the word of God? Is it because of what the Lord is showing you and speaking to you? Or is it based on culture, tradition, something that was there? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to our hearts and you inspire change. You don't leave us in our broken state you restore us to relationship with you. And when we are rightly united with you, Lord, we see how you want us to be rightly united with others. Lord, let it never be that the things of this world separate us. Let it always be that the things of God unite us. Grant us grace, Lord, to function, to be effective, to love, to cherish to hold to one another, oh Lord God, in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for these stories that we read. We thank you for what, Lord, is happening in the life of Paul, in the life of the early church. We thank you, Lord, that despite everything, oh Lord God, they lived in a life of love, of care, of compassion. And we ask you, Lord, that you allow us to do the same. We commit ourselves to you. We look, Lord, we desire to walk in your ways, in biblical, living out the rest of our days in biblical culture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.